Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. It has officially been one full year since I started this podcast. On November 10th, 2020, I released my pilot episode, and on November 17th, I talked about my first tree. I haven't really been present in the back half of this year, but if you stuck with me since the beginning, or at least early on, then I cannot thank you enough. I should be back soon. Now would be a good time to check my social medias to see if I've given an update on my life. But until I'm ready to start making episodes again, this is going to be where the show takes a break. Before I scheduled all these episodes, I wanted to commemorate making it to this point, and so I re-listened to my first tree episode, about the sugar maple. Quite frankly, I had been avoiding this. I hadn't gone back and listened to my early stuff after some point because I was afraid it was actually garbage. Admittedly, I still had some learning to do in the ways of editing and narrative flow back then, but I feel like I have learned these things. Back then I was also really honing in on chill vibes, but I eventually traded that in for enthusiasm, which I think was a positive move. And I'm happy with the content, but I still feel like I could have done better. I focused on that one maple species and unnecessarily left out all the others. Since then, I've come to realize that I can actually cover an entire tree group in one episode if there aren't multiple species that have their own stories and histories. I covered 400 willow species in one episode, for goodness sake. The problem is that there really isn't another single species in that group that has been nearly as influential as the sugar maple has on its own. So I want to take this time to revisit the maple, shine a light on the rest of the noteworthy species in this group, and talk about how these trees have impacted our cultures around the world. Admittedly, the sugar maple is likely the most recognizable of all maple trees. But there's around 160 species of maple worldwide, and there are some key differences between them. 15 to 20 unique species grow in North America, so what else is here? We have the red maple, which is the most widespread maple species in the United States, and the most abundant forest tree in the eastern U.S. according to the U.S. Forest Service. These can be found everywhere east of the Great Plains, Minnesota, down to Texas, across to Florida, up to New Brunswick, Canada, and everywhere in between. The overall maple leaf shape is typically consistent, a simple leaf meaning one blade and not compound with leaflets, and a palmate shape like that of an open hand. But where we see the clean straight edges of the sugar maple, other species like the red have serrated leaf edges like that of a serrated knife. This is certainly one key distinction since the maple group is so identifiable by its leaf. But its flowers are often unique. Most maple flowers are green, and therefore hard to notice as being different from leaves. But the red maple flowers are bright red, and show themselves off with that color variability. It's not why we call it the red maple though, and not for the red fall color either, though its autumn foliage is no less grand than its famously sweet brother. It's actually called the red maple just because the new growth on the tree starts out as this red color, rather than the standard light green that we more commonly associate with new spring growth. There's also the silver maple, an extremely popular street tree. Why is this? The silver maple grows incredibly fast, and it gets to be very large, and it's a maple. This one is identifiable also by its differences in leaves. 
where we see those finger-oriented lobes pointing out on most maples, the spaces between these silver maple lobes dig deeper into the leaf, making the lobes seem longer and more pronounced. And of course, there's a reason why it's called the silver maple. The undersides of the leaves have a certain silvery sheen to them. But despite the fact that it's a popular street tree, it's a bit of a problem tree as well. Its roots are very shallow, and they end up causing a lot of damage to concrete and sidewalks. And their fast growth isn't always a plus. There's a big conflict in our urban areas that we're constantly trying to mitigate between trees and power lines. This was actually what I did for work for a time in my life. I covered every stretch of power line in a given urban area and wrote work plans if a tree had the potential of growing into those high voltage lines in the next few years. With silver maples fast growth, they constantly needed to be trimmed back and from a further distance than most people would expect or prefer. But those suckers cover the distance fast. There's also a weird maple here called the box elder. This tree's leaves look nothing like the maple you're familiar with. In fact, they have compound leaves, where it's a series of leaflets attached to the leaf stalk. The fun thing about box elder is that their leaves look just like poison ivy, but they're not poisonous. But please don't go find some poison ivy and touch it to test it out if it's actually box elder. In the Pacific Northwest, we have the big leaf and vine maples. If you've ever seen pictures of our temperate rainforests with long, sweeping mosses hanging down from broadleaf trees, these are typically the maples I'm talking about here. They don't have quite as good fall foliage as their eastern brethren because there's actually a good recipe for fall color. You want a nice rainy spring to get the tree started on all the nutrients it needs. And then when summer starts to fade into fall, you want dry, warm days with crisp, cool nights. You know, how we want fall to be anyway. And while the rainforests do see a rainy spring and a dry summer, summer will always fade back into the rainy season again, and that just doesn't allow for quite the same showcase of colors. I know what you're wondering, though. Can you make maple syrup out of any of these species? Or is it just a sugar maple thing? You can, and sometimes it's just not quite the same. Sugar maple definitely has the highest sugar content in its sap, but red maple and another species called black maple also have enough sugar in their sap that they can be made into commercial syrup as well. The rest of the species sometimes will, but sugar content is unique per species, so it might be the same, it might not be. What about Europe? There are a few maple species in Europe, but the most common is going to be the Norway maple. This tree spans most of Europe, from eastern Spain all the way to Russia, and from southern Scandinavia down towards the Mediterranean without quite reaching the sea. This tree actually looks quite similar to the sugar maple and is popular to plant as a non-native ornamental here in the United States. One key way to tell them apart is that the leaf stalks of the Norway maple secrete a white milky sap that kind of looks like glue. These are also problematic street trees. I know we all love maples, but the Norway maple has rather weak wood, and they cause a mess when storms come through and inevitably break apart their branches. And then in East Asia, there's a really interesting amount of diversity. There's one in China that I really like called the paper bark maple. Its bark is really peely, so its initial exterior is this dark reddish purplish brown, but it peels itself away in sections to reveal a lighter, more orangey brown underneath. So the trunk has this interesting mosaic appearance to it. On top of that, its leaves tend to color later in the fall season than other maples, and will thus hold onto their leaves longer, often into winter. But the most recognizable of the Asian species is going to be the Japanese maple. 
This tree is known for being smaller and daintier, and for having a ton of different cultivated varieties. Horticulturalists love crossbreeding different kinds of Japanese maples to play with combinations of leaf size and shape, fall color, crown shape, and more. Right now, over a thousand different Japanese cultivars exist, but many of these are new to recent decades. Cultivating these trees in unique ways was something long practiced by the Japanese, but many were lost during World War II. So we've already heard the stories of the sugar maple, syrup, fall color, and wood. How else have these maple species influenced our cultures? For the most part, stories in North America about maples focus on the sugar maple. Specifically the sap. We do love maple syrup. Fall colors and wood? Uh, we don't really care so much. A tree's symbolism often comes from how it helps us survive, and that sap is food. So unfortunately, all those other maples in the US just don't have a lot going for them in that regard. Over in Europe, a field of plenty when it comes to written myth and story, we see surprisingly little told about the maple. The only maple growing on the British Isles is this little shrub called field maple. Don't get me wrong, it's super cute, but it didn't go so much in the way of providing for humans. And so for that reason, we can't really rely on Celtic faith to celebrate this aspect of nature. The Norway maple that we see across the rest of Europe can apparently make sweet syrup just like the sugar maple, but from what I understand, the climate in North America is what really helps make maple sap a productive commodity, and we just don't see the same thing in Europe. This is specifically for the maple, though. Europeans do see value in tree sap, but the tree that actually gave them the most valuable sap is the silver birch. This ends up causing the silver birch to have a high place in multiple European mythologies. It's why it rules over that first month in the Celtic Oum tree calendar. So everything that caused Native Americans to gush about the sugar maple is instead put on birch trees over in Europe. The best we have in the ways of European maple mythology is from ancient Greece. The Norway maple is typically tied to Phobos, the god of terror. We don't know much more than that, such as... why? This gets into my personal theories, but I think it may have something to do with the maple's red fall foliage. Seeing red in nature is often a sign of danger to animals, and red fall foliage is actually a less common thing in Europe than it is in North America. Across Europe, only 24 species have the potential for their leaves to turn red in the fall, while in North America, we have around 90. And in East Asia, they have over 150 deciduous trees that turn scarlet in autumn months. Scientifically, there are a few theories about why this is. During certain cooling periods like the Ice Age, glaciers would come down from the Arctic and cover much of our northern continents. In North America, as well as East Asia, our mountain ranges run predominantly north-south, like the Rocky Mountains and the Appalachians. This would have allowed for certain species to survive by migrating south along these channels. But in Europe, you see a lot more mountain ranges running east-west, like the Alps and the Pyrenees. Without an easy means to escape the overwhelming changes, more species would be unable to survive, including deciduous trees prone to turning red in the fall. With red being more common to see in nature for the people of North America, it becomes less of a danger symbol to humans in that region, but not for Europe. Again, this is just my theory. And while this is all rather disappointing, we do see the maple holding some cultural symbolism in Japan. 
In that island nation, they may refer to the Japanese maple by a number of names such as kaide, which means frog's hands, or momiji, which means baby's hands, both in reference to the small hand shape that is the Japanese maple leaf. I've stressed that symbolism in trees from early humans comes from the tree's usefulness, but in Japan this concept evolved into appreciating nature for its beauty and philosophical value with the Shinto belief system. Shinto is the sort of folk religion in Japan. Even in the modern day where Buddhism and Christianity have had their strong influences, these people have more often than not simply blended their Shinto ideals into these other world religions. Shinto boils down to four basic beliefs or affirmations. Tradition and family, love of nature, physical cleanliness, and honoring the spirits. It is from the second and fourth affirmations that we see strong representations of the maple, since spirits are often said to be closely connected to nature. So it's a combination of respecting beauty and respecting that which is beyond us. More specifically, the maple is a symbol for the autumn season. It seems to form an antithesis or opposite to that symbol of the cherry blossom, which is a strong spring symbol. Throughout Japanese history, we see countless pieces of art and poetry include the Japanese maple leaf as either a symbol for the beauty that comes with fall or to represent nature in general, which I find as not too different when American artists or marketers want to evoke a theme of woodsiness and include depictions of the sugar maple leaf. One way that the Japanese maple is used is as a bonsai plant, a very interesting and somewhat controversial type of arboreal care. Bonsai is the practice of taking what would otherwise grow to be a normal healthy tree and managing its growth so that it stays below one meter in height while maintaining the original structure and appearance of its full-sized version. This management includes techniques like pinching buds, active pruning, and shaping it using wires to keep it small but make it look as a big tree does. I've actually had some listeners ask for my opinion on bonsai. Do I see it as fun tree art or do I see it as tree cruelty? Before I answer, I want to talk about the history of this practice. You may be surprised to learn that bonsai did not start in Japan, it started in China. Over 2000 years ago, Chinese philosophers had come up with the idea that there was power in a miniature reflection. Let me give an example. Say there is a particular mountain that is said to possess a large amount of spiritual energy. The wise sage may travel to the mountain and spend time on it to absorb that spiritual energy himself. or he can try to capture that energy at home. What he could do is use earth and rocks and small plants to build a miniature replica of that exact mountain, getting as many details right as possible in regards to its shape and composition. And if he gets close enough, then this replica can hold the same energy that the original mountain does, but concentrated at this small space that can be focused on in meditation. This concept was later applied to trees, which always hold some type of strong energy because of its status as a living organism. Mountains are still considered to be alive, just in a different way. But originally, the miniature trees were collected like that from the wild. People would find those individuals whose growth was naturally stunted, and consider its stature as a sign that it was meant to be revered rather than used for lumber. This is how the practice of punsai, or tray planting, began. When China introduced their culture to Japan, their form of Buddhism, which was Indian Buddhism mixed with Taoism, mixed with Japanese Shinto to create what is now called Zen Buddhism. And the Punsai, which was translated to Japan as Banzai, was a huge hit. There came about the idea that nature in the wild was its crude form, and that art came about by taking wild nature and shaping it to fit in human life. 
Reshaping nature is something I am a little less fond of, but they did have a good reason for it. Japan does not have a lot of space. Yes, the archipelago is pretty sizable, but a lot of that island land is covered in mountains. Finding space for both people and nature was difficult, and they saw this shrinking of nature as a way to keep them blended. And I like that idea. Nature is something they see as important and holy, but logistics make it difficult to stay integrated. Bonsai is a solution. It was through the Japanese involvement in this art form that we get the various techniques of miniaturization that we see today. If you took a bonsai and stopped heavily managing it and planted it in the right environment, it could still grow to a full-size tree. In regards to whether or not this is cruel to the tree, I don't know. I've mentioned before that I'm not overly fond of anthropomorphizing trees. I don't like to apply the idea of human stress or human pain to them. I love them for what they are, not for what they're not. And really, I am impressed by these artists' abilities to make this small plant look exactly like how it otherwise would at full size. For now, I feel like my fascination overweighs any discomfort I may have. But I'd like to try it someday, and reserve judgment until then. And when I do, I'm going to use a Japanese maple. Ultimately, I think it's understandable that I focused on the sugar maple in that first episode. That one species is special, and I had as much to say about it as I did for the rest of the species. But I almost missed all of this, and I'm glad I went back and revisited. So now we've reached the end of my backlog. If you remember, I physically left in May to go spend six months in the wilderness with no cell or internet connectivity. Everything since then has been stuff that I wrote and scheduled to release before I left. Hopefully it all released as it was supposed to. But I do only plan my life six months in advance, and I don't know where I will be when this episode comes out. If I'm a good responsible boy, then I will be posting again on social media to tell you all what my plans are, so maybe check my Facebook or Twitter if you're on either of those. But as of now, I do still have ideas for more trees I want to talk about in the future. There's a lot of trees that have influenced human culture, but ultimately a finite amount, and at some point, I will run out. But before I do, I want to talk about the trees that you want to hear about. And if you want to hear me continue talking about nature, then I want to hear your ideas for things I can talk about other than specific tree species. I know I'll be sure to do an episode about these last several months of me living remote, and maybe I will go back to my idea about national parks, and talk about forests specifically in those settings. I could do forest ecosystem, or jobs in forestry and natural sciences. Let me know what you think. But until we meet again, thank you for sticking with me and listening to me tell stories about trees. If you're in the U.S., have a happy Thanksgiving. And remember to give thanks for the trees that made us who we are today. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their stuff on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Bandcamp. Wherever good music exists, they are there. My cover art is by Brittany Burnett. Find her incredible photography on Instagram at BoomerangBrit. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees and get updates on future episodes and extra goodies. If you'd like to thank me back, you can do so by donating to your favorite sustainable organization. 
some of which are listed on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. Mm-hmm.